thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we take a look at what it takes to keep Warbird history alive for generations to come and how you can be a part of the legacy. Let's crank them up. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, former U.S. Air Force F-16 pilot, Trevor Boswell. Welcome, everyone. This is Boat. And man, is anyone else asking where all the time went? I mean, it feels like summer absolutely flew by, pun intended. But seriously, we're already a month or so into the school year here in the States, and it looks like the leaves are just about to start turning colors. Man, where did summer go? Oh, well, I guess it's just as good an excuse to start tuning up the snow skis. With all that said, I'm really excited about our in-depth discussion on the Commemorative Air Force today. It's coming up here just in a few minutes, but we do have a few announcements to get to beforehand, so let's get to them. Well, first off, we have a couple of birthdays to mention. The United States Air Force celebrated its 74th birthday on September 18th. Man, it's crazy how fast time flies. Maybe we'll need to do an Air Force history episode or something like that for its 75th birthday. What do you think? And last, but certainly not least, a big belated happy birthday to Jello. Now, most of us from behind the scenes here at the podcast were able to spend the weekend prior to the big day with him at Tillhook down in Reno, Nevada, about a week and a half ago or so. And man, what a great time. It was pretty much the first time for everybody except for Jello, obviously, and we all had a blast. So we do appreciate the invite from him. We got a ton of work accomplished. We prepped for a ton of really amazing stuff coming up over the next year, year and a half or so. That includes putting the final touches on our newest venture, the Air Combat Experience, or as we like our acronyms, ACE. Now, you can find it already online there. It's at its own Instagram page, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube pages, all that good stuff at Air underscore combat underscore exp or experience depending on the platform and while i can't give away all the details one of the things we did discuss was the f-14 tomcast which simulcasted its first episode on our network here on the september 14th broadcast now from what i've been hearing it was a huge hit so if you haven't already listened please go check out episode one where crunch and bio discuss the f-14's developments with one of its original test pilots and then subscribe to the show for future episodes of the F-14 Tomcast, which are planned to air every 14 days on all of your favorite podcast players. So just search F-14 Tomcast to find it. And now there's much more to follow on ACE as the year goes on, but please go check it out and keep your ears and eyes open for all the great things we have in store. Now, we also want to acknowledge our newest Patreon supporters. So at the strike lead level, we have Robin Jerkelly. I know you're going to hate me for that one, Robin, so I apologize. And Caden Crow. At the mission commander level, we have Charles Sinez and Carrie Brenstuhl. Again, I hope I got those anywhere near right. And finally, we have uh, Zach Weisenberger or Weisenberger. 
and he joined us at the Airboss level. You guys are throwing some tough ones at me today. I really appreciate all of you guys helping us out. And please do take advantage of all the benefits that each of the levels that you guys have signed up at. For instance, I was able to do a 30-minute phone call with one of our mission commanders, Robert, a few weeks ago, and we covered a range of topics about warbirds, getting a pilot slot in the Air Force, and a ton more. So please, if you guys feel like that's something that interests you, sign on up. It's really great to speak with you, and I look forward to doing that more in the future. Well, we have a fairly lengthy episode today, so we'll jump right into the questions. And the first question comes from us from Cole Tuza of Canada. Man, I'm getting the tough ones here for the names. Cole, I apologize to you as well, but you're asking about flight management system. So your question was operating in the airlines. All of our aircraft have an FMS or a flight management system that has a database of SIDs, stars, and approaches and draws our magenta line. I've always wondered if fighters have a similar system or are you based on a different navigation system? So for anybody out there, SIDs and stars and approaches, SIDs, standard instrument departures, stars, standard arrival procedures, and approaches are the instrument approaches that get you down to the runway. And the magenta line here we'll talk about in a second. But Cole, thanks so much for uh, listening. We appreciate you uh, submitting your questions. We always love the feedback, so please do keep that coming. But to your question, the short answer is no. Fighters don't have the same set of databases as a commercial aircraft would for departures and arrivals and whatnot. Pretty much our radar vectors to an an instrument approach. And then we manually fly those things all the way down to the ground. It's not because, you know, we don't want it. I think we definitely would like to have something like that. But a lot of the time we are manually flying. So that's one part of it. Whereas in the commercial world, you're using the autopilot, a fair portion of the uh, flight. But also it's a cost thing. For one piece of it, most fighters are not RVSM certified and they can't be because they don't have the required systems or equipment on board. And a lot of that is just a cost thing because you can't update the databases. You can't maintain the aircraft certifications without really hampering the usability of the aircraft potentially there. So for us, U.S. fighters specifically, we use TACANs, which are basically just a VOR DME, if anybody's not familiar. And we hand fly the procedures. While we do have GPS and we can create the specific waypoints using the latitude and longitude of the fix, We can't just type the waypoint name in and the database will be able to find it like you can on a commercial aircraft. Now, I think if I remember correctly, and I never flew the T-6, but I did fly the T-38C, but I believe they're pretty comparable that they are still limited to TACAN and ILS approaches. They are also limited for uh, flying in uh, non-RVSM airspace, but they do have the ability to type in the fixed name and it can then pull that up. So a little bit better system there, but again, Their focus is on training, and some of that is basic instrument flying and everything like that for those that haven't ever flown it before. Whereas in the fighter world, you've already gone through that training, and you're capable of doing that kind of thing uh, using the appropriate uh, navigational aids. That all being said, we do create routes of flight or the magenta line, as you described it in your question. So during the mission planning process, we can do that whole thing, except that it just requires us to know the latitude and longitude of the fix. So uh, sometimes the computer systems, the mission planning software have that ability. Sometimes they don't. And so you have to get creative and pull out the charts and do stuff the old fashioned way and find the fixes. But uh, for the most part, uh, we can do that. It just requires a little more time and effort. But like I said, most things are money driven. Our focus in the fighter world specifically is to shoot the gun shoot missiles, drop bombs, all that good stuff. And the basic navigational capability, we do have that. And all the rest of the stuff, we kind of call it Gucci or fancy. And that is just, we don't need it. And so they're not going to put that at the top of the list for funded items. So it's not always going to make that cut line. And maybe there's a day that it will 
come in the future, but for right now, they just haven't found a need high enough. And that includes the F-35. I asked my F-35 buddies about it and they said the same thing, just like the F-16 before it. Uh, they just don't have a need. So often below the line it goes, I guess. But that's a great question. And I do hear it from time to time. And frankly, I'm pretty sure I asked that same question as I was going through pilot training or F-16 training at least. So it's a completely valid question and definitely is a weird kind of hmm, head scratcher. Why didn't they put this in here? So that's the answer I've got for you. And I uh, hope that clears it up for you. I wish you all the best of luck in your aviation career as you're flying Q400s. And we look forward to uh, hearing you from down in the future. All right. Well, we'll end our Q&A this week with a request. Actually, a little bit of a different there. Maybe we'll call it Q&A and R. But this one comes in from Natalie. And she wonders if we can do a happy birthday shout out. I guess I did a couple already early in the episode. So shoot, why not? I mean, it's the 24th of September and this being the day that Chris Whiting was born. I mean, I guess I figure we can make that happen. So Chris, from all of us here at the show, happy birthday. And we hope this coming year is better than all the previous. All right. Now for the part you've all been waiting for, the interview. So I'll catch you all on the backside for an additional perspective on the commemorative Air Force. And so with that, let's roll it. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. Today, we're taking a bit of a detour from our regular Warbird series, and it's focused specifically on aircraft to look at other aspects of the Warbird community that exists today and kind of more of a holistic approach to the Warbird community. Everybody knows what those beautiful machines look like while they're out there on the flight line at air shows and while doing their demonstrations up in the air, but do you know what it takes to maintain them or what goes on behind the scenes to get them to the air shows? Well, we've touched on some of those things with a few of our previous Warbird guests, but we really haven't dug into too many of the specifics. So let's get in there and let's see what else is going on to keep those memories of their aviators alive and those planes up in the air for current and future generations to see. So to do that, I've brought on an expert from an organization that you've probably heard of before, Ms. Leah Block, the Vice President of Marketing at the Commemorative Air Force. So Leah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm so excited to be here and uh, have you with us and get to hear what you know the Commemorative Air Force is all about. And I know a little bit about it here and there and whatnot, but like many of the guests up front, I like to start out with a little bit about you so the listeners know who they're hearing, I guess, and who I'm talking to. You're the Vice President of Marketing for the Commemorative Air Force now, but where did you get your start? where did you grow up, college, all that kind of stuff? And eventually, how did you get to the Commemorative Air Force? You know, it's interesting. I'm a very unlikely commemorative Air Force staff person, but I grew up in Houston. I was not in the military. I was not a pilot. I did go to the Wings Over Houston Air Show in middle school because that's a really awesome air show to go to for anybody, whether you like airplanes or not. Definitely. I've always been interested in stories. I've always been interested in history. I studied art. I went to the University of Texas and I studied okay. art and art history and design. After that, I worked with kids doing kind of art education and camps and after school programs. After I got married, my husband got a job working at the DA's office in Midland. And I thought, I want to do something really fun, you know, something really different. Mm -hmm. um, and there was this job at the commemorative Air Force Air Power Museum for a gift shop manager. And I thought, well, that's a real easy kind of nine to five gig, totally different, totally fun. And I went to the museum and I checked it out and I applied for the job. You know, before I got in my car, when I left, they called and said, can you come back inside? We want to talk to you. And I did. And I took the job as a gift shop manager, but they kind of said on day one, there's more to this job than being a gift shop manager. 
And what they kind of laid out was the CAF has been around for a very long time and it's a healthy organization, but the membership had plateaued pretty much. You know, that demographic of people who are interested in World War II in general, especially World War II aircraft, had kind of plateaued. They weren't seeing an increase in numbers, but what really kind of worried them sustainability-wise is they weren't seeing any variation in the type of person that was joining the organization. It was military pilots, a lot of retired military pilots, and that's kind of where it started and ended. So the president at the time, Steve Brown, had come from a marketing background at EAA. He kind of felt like we've got to get some people that aren't the norm to start kind of translating this organization to people who wouldn't think they would want to be involved. He probably had that thought the same day that I walked through the door and it just kind of worked out that way, you know? And I told him, you know, I just went through your museum and I never would have gone to this World War II aviation museum, but I walked inside and it's full of art. You know, this big exhibit that they had was a nose art gallery. How very cool. I'd studied art since I was very little and I never knew anything about nose art. And I thought, you know, this is a shame if I'd known about this, you know, we don't learn about this. This is awesome. Yeah. Pretty quickly, I would say it went from, you know, managing the store to doing events outside of the city at big shows like Sun and Fun and Oshkosh and, and really trying to rebrand the CAF using the CAF, just rebrand it in a way that was kind of more inclusive, tell stories that, you know, didn't have to do necessarily with just parts or things that would kind of open the doors and windows for people who weren't pilots. Yeah. And that's really how I got involved and got really hooked. I've been with the CAF now for about 13 years, so I'm no longer an outsider. I think it's safe to say at this point, (laughs) I'm no longer an outsider, but to give you an idea, you know, the first month that I was there, my favorite airplane was the Corsair because it was the only plane I could identify. That was it. It is iconic. I'll give you that for sure. It's iconic, but it was the only one I could say, that is a Corsair. I know that for <laughs> sure. You know, I've talked to several people felt the same way about the Corsair. Like, thank yeah. goodness for the Corsair, the recognizable Corsair. Definitely. Makes us outsiders feel like we know something. Well, and that's, I think, you know, one of the reasons I was interested in bringing you all on here was because we hear as you go to air shows and you see the airplanes and everything, and you may see the little wings of the commemorative air force on the sides of the airplanes, but it really doesn't tell the full story of what's going on. So that's why I wanted to have you all on here. One of my kind of missions within this Warbird series on our podcast is to kind of branch out a little bit, find a little bit more about the Warbird community, if you will, and kind of explore that a little bit. And so I think this is a great opportunity to do exactly that and hopefully provide a little bit more knowledge for the the listener base out there that may want to be interested or get involved and actually participate in some of that. So I think this is a great place to start. So let's get in there. So first and foremost, Commemorative Air Force, what is it? And what prompted its creation? So it is a flying museum is the easiest way to put it. Our official mission is to educate, inspire, and honor. And really, it's been that way from the beginning. It, It was founded in 1957. Its initial 
formation was really a joke. It was, you know, a guy who wanted to buy a World War II airplane, couldn't quite afford it, found some buddies to go in with him and buy an aircraft. And once they did, they thought, wow, you know, had we not done this, what would have happened to this airplane? It'd probably be cut up into pieces. The other guy said, you know, it's fun to fly one airplane, but you can't really tell a story unless you've got two of them kind of flying together. So then there was another airplane and it went from being kind of funny to very serious really quickly. Sure. So it started off as a flying club with some friends and it became a movement of we've got to get these planes fast and we've got to find people who know how to fly them fast. And we have to find the people who flew them and who built them and tell us how they built them. Tell us what they did when they flew them. Tell us. And that's what they started doing very, very early on. The other thing that the CAF is kind of known for is this living history experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, The air shows have been around for a really long time since airplanes have been around What the CAF did was say, okay, here's a history lesson that we're going to tell you with the flying aircraft, and you're never going to forget this. You might learn about this in school, but once you see these airplanes interact with each other and we tell you what happened, you're not going to forget it. And, you know, this kind of edutainment concept, I feel like they're so cutting edge. I mean, this is in the 1960s. They're saying, you know, if you really want to educate people, it needs to be impactful. It needs to be 4D. It needs, and that's something we're just coming around to now, kind of in, in the wide world. Yeah. So I'm pretty proud of the fact that they saw early on, if you want people to appreciate history, if you want people to understand aviation, you've got to see it move. You've got to hear it. You've got to smell it. You've got to stand next to it and walk through it. And that's been kind of the founding fiber of the CAF from the beginning. And it remains very true to this day. And that's why we say flying museum. That's a tremendous part of what we do is the flying aspect. We like to come to you, but we also, we don't have any velvet ropes. We want you to come on board. We want you to not pull the emergency brake, but touch the levers and see the buttons and ask questions. And that's really what the CAF is about. We now, at this point, we have 174 aircraft, which is a lot. That's a lot of airplanes. More than many countries. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. It's the, it's the largest private flying collection for sure. Wow. With that, we have about 60 different locations across the world where each location is a little different, but the aircraft, instead of being all in one place, like a static aviation museum, Mm -hmm. the aircraft are assigned to different locations across America, but we also have units in France and in England and Switzerland. Oh, fascinating. It's a pretty wide network of World War II enthusiasts. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, World War II being the scope and scale that it was, you have a lot of people that around the world were impacted directly by it and and therefore the history along the way. So that's fascinating. One quick question was, 
from a, a listener about the naming of the commemorative Air Force. So I know maybe about 15, 20 years ago, give or take, there was a name change, and I think it was Confederate Air Force previously. Why, if anybody knew it as that, why did they change it to commemorative Air Force? So the name Confederate Air Force, and this is pre-digital era, so okay. the documentation is typed sure yeah <laughs> be a typewriter the old school way that's right <laughs> the idea is that somebody painted confederate air force on the aircraft okay and it was a joke it was a we're going to create clearly the people and this is this organization i should say was started in south texas deep south texas yeah. harlingen texas which is close to the mexico texas border okay. so deep south texas and they were saying, you know, it's the people making decisions in the North are the ones that are cutting up all these aircraft. So our mission is to save the aircraft. We're going to rebelliously go against their ruling, you know, to scrap the airplanes and we're going to save them. So that was where the name kind of came from. I see. And it was very catchy. And so they kind of went with it for a while. They did not change the name to Commemorative Air Force until 2001. Mm -hmm. I've done a little digging on the topic and pretty early on, they started saying, you know, this isn't really what we want people to think of us as, <laughs> this sure. is, you know, it's funny when it was just us and, you know, it was just, but now that we're going to air shows and even in 1972, the CAF had a huge presence at Transpo in Washington, DC a lot of the documentation there says, do not wear your Confederate Air Force patches, patches yeah. because that wasn't what they wanted people to focus on. Yeah. You know, they wanted people to focus on the aircraft and they wanted them to focus on that history. Yeah. Not everything that comes along now with what is the Confederacy. Yeah. It makes sense. It does make sense. Yeah. And, and if you name something, you want people to understand what it is you're doing, yep. you know? So commemorative air force is a very fitting name. I think so. But they did a very good job marketing the Confederate air force because it is still in a lot of places we see. And yep. yeah, that was our history. All right. Well, very good. Well, you mentioned all around the world and everything. Let's start with the headquarters of the commemorative air force. Where is that located? The headquarters is based in Dallas, Texas at Dallas executive airport. So it's in South Dallas. Okay. It was built there in 2015. The headquarters has moved a couple of times. It was in Harlingen and then Mercedes, which is also in South Texas. And then it moved to Midland, Texas. Okay. And in 2015, they relocated the offices to Dallas and started building what will become the CAF National Air Base. So a full campus. The offices have been there since 2015, and we just finished building the Henry B. Tippy National Aviation Education Center, which is a 37,000 square foot educational building. So there's a STEM innovation hangar. There's the James C. Ray Education Wing, which are classrooms and workshops. And then we also have a section which is gallery space and exhibit space and stuff like that. So that's the first big, gigantic dinosaur-sized footprint <laughs> of the <laughs> good description. national air base that's coming along. So it's very exciting. We just finished building it and it's 
the grand opening is in November. Oh, fantastic. So. And we discussed this before we started recording, but Al Benzing, who is the XO uh, over top of uh, Fifi, the B29, and he was talking about that. And I believe that's where Fifi is based out of. Mm-hmm. So one of the listeners, like I had spoken to prior to recording as well, we have listeners that submit questions for the episode topics that we're covering. And uh, Scott Manning was our listener that asked about getting aircraft assigned to a particular CAF organization, location, and whatnot. And so his example was how did the Mitsubishi Zero end up in the Southern California wing of the Commemorative Air Force in Camarillo, California. So same with the B-29 and others. How do you guys dictate that? Or is that just a natural, that's where the airplane happens to be, so it just goes there? It's a process. And Obviously, over decades, we've tried to figure out, okay, what's the best way to assign aircraft? What are the criteria of assigning aircraft? Okay. So all of the aircraft are technically owned by the American Air Power Heritage Flying Museum, okay. which is an entity of the CAF. Those are the flying assets. All of the aircraft owned by that organization within the CAF have a board. And on that board, they make decisions as to where aircraft should be assigned to. In a lot of cases, the CAF acquires the aircraft because they're donated. Okay. And when they're donated, they're not donated directly to a unit. They have to be donated to the CAF, to the Flying Museum Board, so that the board can make an assignment. Okay. And that's because the board's job really is to make sure that the aircraft will be used and maintained the best possible way. Okay. So if someone wanted to, you know, assign the B-29 to a unit with three people, the board would probably not support that because they wouldn't be able to maintain the aircraft that way. So that's why the aircraft go through that process. Sometimes the CAF buys aircraft, but I would say the majority of them are donated, sometimes through members, sometimes not, and they kind of get assigned based on whether or not the unit is equipped to handle the aircraft. I see. The Zero, I learned, came from another museum that was in Southern California. Okay. And that's where the SoCal... So they kind of knew the previous owner had a relationship, and it's a very large unit, so they were able to take the aircraft. So in that case, it was kind of the aircraft's pretty much already here. So we'll keep it there. But it was a relationship they'd built with the owner over time. So he felt comfortable knowing where the aircraft was going and and the board was all for it. Yeah. Speaking of bases around the US, you said France, probably England as well, I think. Where's the largest CAF base and what kind of aircraft do they have out there? If I throw you a curveball, sorry about that. No, it's okay. So there's largest and there's largest. So there's largest, which has the most planes or the most people or that. So some of the larger ones, Mm -hmm. I'll say Airbase Arizona, which is in Mesa. Arizona is one of our, might be the largest unit. Okay. And they operate a B-25 called Made in the Shade and a B-17 named Sentimental Journey. Okay. They also have a number of trainers and they have a C-47. It's a very large unit. They have two giant hangars there and a great museum if you're in the area, but they also operate the Flying Legends Tour. So while they have that base there in Mesa with the museum, the two aircraft, the B-17 and the B-25 are on tour, sometimes operating independent, two different tours at the same time, traveling across the country. That's a pretty big unit. 
Southern California wing in Camarillo, California is also a very large unit. They have a lot of aircraft, a lot of uh, Navy fighters in that area. Mm-hmm. And they also have Semper Fight. They're really going with the Navy theme. I can tell. But yeah. they have a Spitfire. <laughs> they have two foreign aircraft. So they have the Spitfire and they also have the Zero is there. Okay. And I think they have a BF-108 now that just got assigned to them. So they've got a really, really cool collection. Oh, very cool. Another big one is Airbase Georgia, which is in Peachtree City. And they also have a very large, they don't have any bombers. They're fighters and trainers and liaison aircraft. It's a really great group. They do a lot of very cool events. Very cool. What about overseas? So the French, is it a single base in other countries or is it similar to the U.S. where there's multiple bases? So we only have one unit in each country. There's one in Switzerland. There's one in France. There's one in England. I'm not sure what the current status is because given it's hard to keep in touch with people yeah but we also had one in new zealand so we need to check on those guys and see how they're doing but yeah they're very similar to the way that the units operate in the u.s okay the uk wing actually is new and started after the caf went to england for the 75th anniversary of d-day Okay. So when the CAF went over with That's All Brother and D-Day Doll, the D-Day aircraft, we needed help. So we looked to some of our members that were in the area in England and said, hey, can you help us? (laughs) 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 We're here. Can you help us? And they got to meeting each other and they were like, well, we'll just start a unit. So they kind of came out of that. They don't have an aircraft yet, but it's a pretty cool group. So there's lots of different groups around. Oh yeah. No, that's great. The kind of the running joke, it takes a village, but I mean, it, it literally does. It's, it, and then we'll talk a little bit more about some of the, the support related things that uh, go behind the scenes with keeping these airplanes going, but it does take a monumental effort to keep these things going. So, all right. So we kind of touched on uh, the 174 aircraft in the inventory right now, who owns the aircraft. What about the future? Any special aircraft that are joining the inventory in the near future that you can talk about now? Well, technically, I think the aircraft we've been looking for lately are really aircraft that we would use to help train pilots. Okay. A lot of people who are pilots, they might retire and say, oh, I've got this extra time. I'll fly for the CAF. But there's more training that goes into it. So depending on the aircraft that people would want to fly with the CAF, you need a lot of tailwheel experience. Okay. So we're trying to get more of those types of airplanes so we can train more pilots which is a lot of trainers and not the exciting answer that you probably wanted. So now I'll tell you what I want, what's on my (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And I'm not on the board, so I don't get to make any decisions, but that doesn't mean I don't tell people what I want. So (laughs) the first plane I would want is a P-38 Lightning. The CAF used to fly one that was not actually owned by the CAF, but we flew one often. Okay. And it's actually in our logo. So the fact that we don't have a P-38 makes me crazy sometimes because I think we should have one. Sure. Fair (laughs) enough. I also think it would be very cool to have a tiger cat because we have a wild cat and a bear cat and a hell cat. And I just think that would be very awesome. Logical addition. Yep. And then if I really thought, you know, if I could have any airplane, what would it be? It would be the the Haviland Vampire. Oh, wow. Because I'm a marketing person and that would be a tremendous amount of fun for me. And so 
not really logical, but that would be my hope. <laughs> that, you know, whatever gathers the interest and obviously it's a unique airplane. So I think that's totally fine. It is very cool. That was more of an answer for Jim Gundog. He was, he had asked what the coveted list of airplanes are and, and everything like that. But when it comes to aircraft, are you guys specifically looking for flying capable aircraft out the door or do you guys have any that are in the works to be converted to flying capable, if that makes sense? Yes and yes and yes. We're really looking for almost any salvageable aircraft that makes sense. Okay. Obviously, you've got to balance, you know, is it feasible? Do we have the funds to get it working? Again, do we have the desire? In addition to the money, you also have to have a cadre of people that really want to see it fly that are going to, you know, take it on. Right now, I would say top of the list would be aircraft that we could use to get to train pilots. So, you know, working aircraft would be ideal in that situation because they serve a specific purpose. Mm -hmm. But we came across That's All Brother is a really good example of an aircraft that was not airworthy. It was going to take a lot of money to fix. However, it had such a fascinating history and we felt really strongly that even though it's just a C-47, sure. and even though it's going to cost a lot of money, yeah. this airplane needs to fly because it has a great story to tell. So, you know, the answer is we will entertain kind of any situation and bounce it around and see if it's feasible. Yeah, you just have to make sure the juice is worth the squeeze, if you will. Dejevin asks a question, specifically, uh, there's a P-51C Mustang. Is your P-51C Mustang an actual aircraft the Red Tails flew? And can you tell us a bit about how it was acquired and restored? So the aircraft that they're talking about, the name of the aircraft is Tuskegee Airmen. Mm -hmm. And it is painted in the livery of the Red Tail aircraft flown by the Tuskegee Airmen. It is not an aircraft that was flown by the Tuskegee Airmen. And most of the CAF aircraft do not have combat history okay. because they wouldn't still be here. Most of the ones we have were built late, used for training, mm -hmm. had some kind of interesting issue, which kept it from being sent abroad. Most of our aircraft have that, you know, and that's why they're still here in one piece. Mm -hmm. We have a couple that have combat history, the C-47s that I mentioned earlier, also our B-25, Ms. Mitchell, has some combat history, but most of them don't. That particular Mustang was, again, a case where there was a, a member who bought it, worked on it, decided to donate it to the CAF, and I think it's been in the collection since the 70s. Very good. When you're going through the acquisition process, does the government have any play in that process at all because it was a former military aircraft at some point? In some of our aircraft, I do believe that it does. I think it depends on where the aircraft is coming from. Okay. Some, especially the early CAF aircraft, we got directly from them. You know, they were taken out of boneyards from the military. So yeah. each aircraft really has its own personal history. They're very different depending on how they were acquired, when yeah. they were acquired, what type of aircraft they are. So it just depends on where we got it from, basically, okay. if the military still has some. I see. And I think the kind of the next logical step is obviously you guys 
acquire the airplanes and then you fly the airplanes and they're obviously not current technology aircraft. And so one of the questions we had from one of the listeners, uh, Travis Anders asked about the ever-growing complexity of military aircraft. Are we approaching a time where civilian-owned ex-military planes are no longer feasible? And, and obviously these ones are a little bit older and longer in the tooth, if you will, but what's kind of the feeling around the CAF related to when these aircraft are not going to be flyable again in general terms, I guess? There's a lot of things that you could say threaten this being able to fly the aircraft, lots of different factors. You know, the technology piece of it, that doesn't worry me so much because they were very simply built aircraft. You know, they were built in a hurry. The manuals still exist. Our members have been maintaining and flying the aircraft much longer than they were intended to be, much longer than the people who flew them initially. Uh, We've got more hours. So experience-wise, I think we are in a very good place. Parts and pieces wise, that gets interesting. You know, it isn't easy. There's not a surplus of these parts anywhere, most of the parts. So there's a lot of expense and also fabricating and engineering that goes into it. But, you know, it's that same kind of passion that our members have to keep the aircraft flying that goes into maintaining them. They really take on, you know, the challenges of finding pieces and parts and even making modifications when needed. That's All Brothers is a fascinating study in restoration because they went so far as to make plates to cover, you know, the modern avionics so that, you know, if you went into the cockpit, you wouldn't see the modern screens, you know? I see. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think we found a way to kind of marry the two. There is a funny story from one of the crew members that flew to Europe had a cup holder 3D printed for the C-53. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) It's an interesting modification. So, I mean, I think we manage, you know, I think when it comes to the parts, I think we adapt and manage. And that was another question that John Clark had asked about, you know, how do you operate these older aircraft without the current production line still being available. And I know that's been a question on some of the other orbit episodes that I've asked the owners or the operators of those aircraft as well. But these aircraft have a lot of special needs that are unique to them. Radial engines aren't a real big common thing anymore. Where do you go to get parts and the maintenance skills to do that? And then you've talked about the training program for tailwheel centric training. What's the general theme from the CAF like headquarters level and the support they provide the local bases? I think what we do a lot of times is operate, be an an operator. So we plug Mm -hmm. the units into each other. You know, that's one of the tremendous benefits of the organization is that there's a lot of experience. We have so many B-25s. If you're having a B-25 issue, there's other people that you can call. (laughs) In 65 years, you know, this issue may have come up before. We might have solved the problem before. So I think a lot of what headquarters does is, is plug people into other units and other people to help be a resource for one another. Facilitate the communication and networking kind of thing. Exactly. And I think that is helpful. I mean, it's helpful for maintenance. I think it's helpful for safety. You know, when you've got pilots that are sharing a knowledge of flying an aircraft that is so unique, it's tremendously helpful, I think, to have that breadth of experience between the pilots that we have and the maintainers that we have who've been doing it for, you know, some of them have been doing it for a really long time. 
when someone new comes along, it's great, you know, because they're learning from someone who's got so much experience. Yeah. We'll shift into very much in the same line of questions, but the funding piece for all this, because obviously each of these airplanes themselves are probably pretty expensive. And then you add the upkeep and the maintenance, the parts and fuel costs, the transportation to and from air shows and so on. First and foremost, who funds the commemorative air force? So it's donations and we have some sponsors. Some of the aircraft have their own sponsors, company sponsors, but the majority of it is donations. We do have some revenue that comes in through memberships and we have some revenue that comes in through events, air shows okay. and rides or cockpit tours. But the bulk of it is really donations. It's interesting. These things, these, I guess, threats that you would say to the organization, they were concerned about them really from the beginning. There's all kinds of articles from the eighties about price of gas is going up and what are we going to do and oil yeah. and parts and, we're never going to be able to afford this. But the interest hasn't waned. If anything, I would say the interest has grown in keeping preservation, this specific preservation, viable. Makes sense. I mean, it's not a cheap business to participate in, but you know, I think you have a lot enough people interested in aviation that are willing to help out. And then we'll talk more about the membership later, but I'm sure some of the membership pieces kind of come into that as well. I think you mentioned at the outset, the volunteer, a lot of this is manpowered and funded in a way by uh, people that are willing to volunteer their time. Yeah, definitely. When you say the facts out loud, it's 174 airplanes. There's about 32 full-time staff members. Wow. That's crazy. So (laughs) it really is. Yeah. So when you think about it in terms of that and we're flying in multiple locations, doing tours mm-hmm. you know, for probably about eight months out of the year and very, very few staff members. It's really mostly volunteers. That's amazing. Well, back to the specific cost piece. So Craig Quake had asked a question about the cost per flight hour. And I pulled a couple from some of our past guests, but you know, the P-51 or anything else, did you have any numbers, if you will, that you would want to share? Yes. I did some research on this question. It's a very good question. And I don't think you're going to get the same answer from anybody about what it would cost because it just depends on what the factors they're kind of figuring into the cost. Yeah. And one of them, which I didn't think about, but it's true, whether you fly one hour or a thousand hours a year, that changes the cost per hour, right? Yeah, very much. These are not very easy black and white answers, but- what I was told by a very reliable source, <laughs> the P-51 Mustang is about $1,500 an hour okay. to fly. And something like the B-29, which I know you have your own source, so I mm-hmm. would defer to that source. But I was given a number between $8,000 and $10,000 an hour to fly. A B-25, $2,500 an hour. And a C-47, $1,700 per hour. Okay. And I look forward to all of the emails that you will be receiving <laughs> to debate those numbers. <laughs> those numbers are terrible. Um, yeah. So we'll do a comparison. So you had to be 25 and to be 29. And I asked Al Benzing, who flies Fifi, that's part of the Commemorative Air Force, a past guest of ours. 
he corroborates your uh, cost there. He says he usually quits about $10,000 an hour, but he thinks it may be on the low side. So, you know, again, it's a who knows what it really is going to cost. And you and I had spoken about this before the show. But when I flew F-16s, we always quoted a number. But that number, again, where do you stop including things that go towards that flight hour? Do you just stop at fuel and oil and that's it? Or do you include the pilot costs for training and the maintenance costs of using the airfield and the equipment and the maintainers and so on? Like the list can go on and on and on. But back to the B-29, he said about $10,000 per hour, but that may be on the low side. But he did specify with direct operating costs, kind of an air quotes there, including the 400 gallons of fuel per hour. If you flat spot a tire, one of those is 5,000 bucks. So, I mean, Again, the list goes on and on and on. And then to uh, corroborate the B-25, you mentioned 2,500. Larry Kelly, or again, a past guest of ours, he said the same thing, including fuel and oil, but it may be around $3,000 now. Who knows if inflation's included? Again, all mm-hmm. these things change. And that a new set of tires for his airplane, Panchito, was about $15,000. And if you have to do an engine change, it's about $90,000. Yeah. So there's a lot of zeros uh, is the theme, I think, between all these Also, you know, when you think about operating costs, there's also non-operating costs. So for our aircraft, when they're flying, a lot of them are making money via appearance fees and things like that. When they're not flying, they're losing money. So that goes into play also. And I think, you know, Al, I don't know if he told you this or not, but recently they had to change out an engine on Fifi and they were able to get it done in about a week. Because through budgeting and understanding, okay, this is what it costs for us to be down. We really cannot be down for very long. So we're going to work that into our budget and plan ahead so that we've got a backup everything. Nope, that's smart. Very, very smart. So they do a really good job with that. But not every unit operates that way. And for them, being down is not okay. And they need to be on tour. That's their good place for that unit to be in. Some of the other units enjoy the process. You know, some of the other units, you know, while we want the aircraft to fly, sometimes the process of restoring the aircraft is what that unit is going to rally around. You know, it's not just the flying piece of it. It's the restoration piece of it. So everybody's got a different attitude or objective about what they're doing. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, call sign Primetime. And my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. That's kind of the old adage. You have to spend money to make money kind of thing. And especially with aircraft, uh, you don't see it nearly as much with cars, but uh, definitely with aircraft, the less you fly them, the more they break. It seems like it's weird, some weird dichotomy here, but yeah, you definitely need to keep them airborne, keep them doing what they're supposed to be doing. Your maintenance costs seem to go down in general. 
you know, one thing on that, and I'm not sure how much the headquarters does on the specific aircraft maintenance front, but another listener had asked, uh, this is Gary Frey. He was interested to know how they work the logistics of affecting a repair when they have an aircraft that has a maintenance issue away from their home base, and especially one that requires specialized ground equipment or, or something like that, like an engine removal or, or anything like that. How much do you guys at headquarters deal with that? And then what do you provide logistically uh, support-wise? It really depends on the unit and what they need. So I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but in a parental sort of way, we're here if you need us. Yeah. Okay. We don't want to control everything that you do and how you do it, but you know, here's the parameters. Let's work mm-hmm. within these parameters. Do you need help? Okay. What can we do to support you when you need it? The units have a lot of autonomy over their aircraft. And that's part of what makes the organization work is that they really put their, you know, sweat equity and, and funds Mm -hmm. into the airplane. So if someone were to swoop in and kind of take over all the time, it wouldn't go very well. But in a lot of cases where either on our way there, making phone calls, trying to make deals, wherever that kind of support is needed, the units also have that network with each other. They know that there's members kind of all over the country. They know there's a lot of people who have their own hangers if we need it. You know, so it, that's another kind of nice thing about the organization is, oh, you know, let me see who's in this area who might be able to help or who could drive over a part. That sort of thing happens a lot. No, that's great. seems like a smart way to run the organization, especially when everything is so diverse and potentially so specialized. So that's good. All right. Well, let's shift gears away from that portion of the operation. We'll talk about membership and uh, maybe how people can get involved. So rough numbers and and whatnot is uh, totally fine. But how many members do you guys have and what's the process to become a member of the uh, CAF? Well, it's very easy. Um, All you have to do is go online and click the join button. Where do I go online to do that? Commemorativeairforce.org. Okay, perfect. And there's a join button right there. We have about between 11,000 and 12,000 members. Okay. Of that number, we have different levels of membership. So we have membership for people who are age, you know, 12 to 23. Okay. And then we have members, adult members. Some members are very involved at the kernel level and volunteer their time and they're very active. Most of the time in those cases, they live close to a unit or they belong to a unit like the B-29 that we've talked about as a touring unit. So that airplane's on the road a lot. And so Mm. they've got members kind of all over the place. I see. And then we have members that just support the organization. It's a donation and they like to be involved and know what's going on. And if there's a show that's by where they live, they might come out and help and at an air show or give tours and things like that. So you know, it's a broad community of people. It's really not just pilots. Of those 11,000 members, we probably have around 350-ish pilots. Okay. So those are just CAF pilots. Some of our members might fly by themselves, but not everybody. We have a lot of people who just really like history or have family members that participated in World War II or just made model airplanes or they like to fly RC aircraft or they just like to go to air show. You know, there's really all different types of people. There's a space for everybody in the organization. And, and like I said before, with it being such a mainly volunteer organization, I mean, we need people that can handle Facebook accounts. We need people that can talk to people and give them tours on the aircraft. It's not just pilots or mechanics. It's people who will talk to other people. 
that was going to be my next question. Are you guys looking for specific types of people to become members? Or obviously, you're probably just open to the general public in whatever form or fashion. But if there are people that have specialties or technical skills of some type, what are you guys looking for? I mean, right now, we're looking for people who are just able to help with all kinds of stuff okay. at events. We need people to help put up signs. A lot of the units have museums that have been around for a really long time. And a lot of the museums are looking to digitize things, scan photos, maintain websites, you know, really, really all types of things. And I would encourage anybody go to the website. And if you have a special skill, let us know and we will find, <laughs> find a, we'll place, find for a you. place for you. Exactly. We will yeah. find a place for you. That's great. Well, so kind of in that same vein, then talking about education and volunteering and those types of things, obviously there's plenty of places to volunteer and you kind of mentioned those, but uh, education programs, you talked about the flying portion of the education and seeing that up close and personal at air shows, or maybe even getting to sit in cockpits and whatnot. But what other types of things do you guys provide? A lot of it's unit-based. So we have different units. We'll have different programs for different groups. Some of the really cool ones we have going on right now, we have a group that's in Texas, I think in Gainesville, Texas, and it's called our Ground Forces unit. And they don't have airplanes. They have tanks and Jeeps and things like that. So they started an after-school program kind of working on and maintaining the vehicles, the military vehicles. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the programs. We have a couple of units that have a student-led restoration project. They have our members that are kind of overseeing these projects, but for the most part, the student is the crew chief and the other students kind of help do the restoration after school and on the weekends. We have two J3 Cub projects and one It's a BT-13 that was restored to be a Val. So it's a Val-restored BT-13 that they're doing in San Antonio. Oh, my goodness. So lots of programs like that. Okay. A lot of units work with Cub Scouts, Girl Scouts, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. No, it sounds diverse. And I know from the website, you can go in there and find what those education programs are. And some of them are for the younger folks. And then there's the general population kind of thing. So they are kind of tailored to, you know, maybe age appropriate for whatever the topic area is. And that website, again, www.commemorativeairforce.org. And we'll put that in the show notes here on the uh, podcast when it gets released. But local wings, do they have their own individual websites or do they all kind of funnel through the main website? How does that work? Most have their own individual websites. Okay. The commemorativeairforce.org is like the opening of the funnel. So you can always go there and find the other units, websites and Facebook pages and Instagrams and all that good stuff. You do like the find the unit closest to you kind of thing and all that stuff. Exactly. Yep. And map. That also the events that are going on, if the units are on tour, I recommend this to people is if you go on our website, you can subscribe to the newsletters and that kind of, we send out once a month that here's a map of where we're going to be. Here are the cities. Here's what's going on. That sort of thing, which I think is really helpful because that's the question we get, you know, when is this airplane going to be in my backyard so I can see it? <laughs> well, and that just leads us perfectly right into the next thing. What is on the horizon? So, you know, air shows, flybys, how can the folks go and see beyond going onto the website and everything, but how can they go find these things and what do you guys have coming up? Yeah. So um, the events page on the website is a good place to start. The big stuff coming up, October is big air show season in Texas. So we've got Wings Over Houston 
I believe is the 37th or 38th year for that air show will be October okay, perfect. Uh, 9th and 10th at Ellington, south of Houston. Mm-hmm. And then Wings Over Dallas, which is a strictly World War II themed air show, will be October 29th, 30th, and 31st. So you can find both of those shows on our website, but also very simply wingsoverhouston.com or wingsoverdallas.com. And is the Commemorative Air Force hosting that or how are you guys associated with it? Yeah, those are two CAF shows. We will be at lots and lots of other air shows. Um, You know, we've got Wings and Wheels in Dallas. We have busy weekends. (laughs) Yeah. We're recording this at the end of August and Fifi is out on the road right now up in my, you know, hometown neck of the woods in Colorado. I know these aircraft are traveling all over the place all the time. So are those more when you're looking for those types of events and that kind of thing, can we also find those on the CAF website or do we have to go to specific different places? You can find them on the CAF website. Usually what we do is a listing okay, and then you can click on it and get more information from the unit. World War II Heritage Days, I should mention also, is in Georgia. They're having their big show in October also. In October as well. So, okay. And that is a very, very cool. Lots of living historians are there. They do lots of encampments. So it's super fun. Nice. It's very cool. I was out at Oshkosh and I know you were unable to attend this year, but I was out there and, you know, you go to, to fighter alley and you see all the P-51s and everything else that are out there. And then right across the street is, is all the encampment stuff from the reenactments and, and whatnot. Very cool, uh, unique experience for sure. I don't know how those guys did it in the real, real world, but, uh, to reenact it was pretty neat to see. So, well, awesome. Leah, the other, you know, kind of fun question we like to hear about is celebrity. So is the commemorative air force famous for anything? And typically, you know, it's easy to put an airplane to it, but about, what about the calf? It depends, you know, and our organization, a world war II veteran is just as famous as a Hollywood celebrity. So it depends <laughs> on what you're looking for. Sure. Really like anything we'd know maybe beyond just the aircraft flying at an air show that we'd be able to learn a little bit more or we'd know or see it from like a movie or a book or anything like that? Well, as we have the largest collection of World War II aircraft, anytime you see a World War II aircraft, chances are it is a CAF aircraft. So we'll say that. Okay. A couple of things that Tor, 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 which is a movie that I think sparked a lot of people's interest in World War II. Yeah. Those aircraft... Um, were donated to the CAF after the movie was made. Oh, wow. And they still fly with the Tora 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 air show, yeah. which I think is 40-ish years old. So, um, it's been around a while. Yeah. yeah. So that's one. Pearl Harbor, the movie Pearl Harbor was another thing that we were involved in. You know, a lot of our members work as consultants, shows and movies. We were One fun thing, Fifi was on Better Call Saul, which is a TV show, which was really great. The director said, you know, I'm trying to work in a way to get World War II into my show. I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to. And he did. And that was really cool. Oh, that's amazing. One of my roles at the organization is to look at all the contracts that come through for TV shows and things like that. And it's increasing more and more, which is great. You know, the more movies they make, TV shows they have, um, references, things like that, the better. So, Do you know of anything in the works right now that you guys can talk about for upcoming movies or anything? Not that I can talk about. Okay, perfect. There's definitely a lot in the works, a lot of really cool stuff. So the positive is the interest in World War II is not waning. 
people are still very much excited to see these aircraft and vehicles. And, you know, the time for the veterans is very limited. So for us, they are now the celebrities. You know, how can we make sure that we capture every little bit of their story, of their memories, what they can tell us and impart upon us so that we have it is now so much a part of our mission, including preserving the aircraft. You know, that's a big piece of it. Definitely. They are our current celebrities. <laughs> Very much so. Well, Leah, this has been a really great time. And I feel like I knew something about the topic when I dive into it. And then you dive into it and you learn so much more. So I really want to appreciate uh, everything that you shared with us today. And I know the listeners are clamoring. That's, I think, probably the most number of questions I've received for a topic. So that's fantastic when it goes to uh, going into recording with somebody. But uh, as we start to wrap it up, I want to make sure we covered everything. So is there anything else that you can think of that we didn't already cover that you want to mention? I can't think of anything, but you know, we've got plenty of other topics. So feel free to invite us back. We've got lots of planes to discuss and lots of people to talk about. So we'd love to come back anytime. Well, very good. I know we've got a laundry list of things we'd like to discuss, so we'll definitely be in touch. We'll see what we can do in the future, but you guys run a truly remarkable organization. And I, as a fan of aviation, specifically the Warbird community, I want to say thank you to you and everybody that uh, works within the CAF, all the volunteers that participate in the restoration and the uh, airborne displays and the history and everything else that you guys bring out there. I want to say thank you to all of you for keeping that you know aviation history alive and well in whatever form or fashion you guys are able to do so. It is a uh, very special task that uh, you all do, and you all do it uh, very, very well. So thank you all for that. It's our honor to be able to do so. We take the job very seriously, so much so it doesn't feel like a job. It's just a passion for all of us. That's the best way to be, I think. I think. <laughs> all right. Well, for our listeners out there, please remember to visit www.commemorativeairforce.org to find everything we've touched on here. And uh, the focus is touched on because there is so, so much more out there, uh, including a list of all the aircraft they have in the inventory with the images and some of their backstories associated with them, as well, like we talked about upcoming ways to see them. And again, so much more out there. So please go check that out. And if you do have the time, the resources to donate or even uh, better become a member and volunteer your time, then by all means, go and do that because it is well worth every second that you can spend if you have it to give. So for everybody out there, thanks so much for listening and we will see you next time. All right. Well, welcome back into the studio, everybody. My thanks again to Leah for sharing the commemorative Air Force's story and filling us in on what it takes to keep the history of the Warbird community alive and airborne. So now that we've got a bit about the organization itself and its purpose and how they manage it all, let's learn of what it's like to be a member of it. And so to do that, let's bring in the chief of marketing for Warbird Digest Magazine and an actual member of the commemorative Air Force, Mr. Moreno, Mo Aguiari. Mo, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me, both. Appreciate it. I'm excited to have you on. We've been chatting for a few months and we even got to see each other in person up at Oshkosh. That was awesome. And we have a bunch to unpack here, I think, with uh, the Commemorative Air Force. But, you know, just to start it out, let's get a little bit about you and, and how and where you came to be involved with the Commemorative Air Force. Well, I've always been a fan of vintage aviation and warbirds in general. I'm originally from Italy and growing up, I used to buy the Fly Past and the uh, Aeroplan magazines out of the UK. And Obviously, uh, the CAF was one of the main organizations featured in this magazine. So I always known the CAF since a young uh, young man. When I came in the U.S., I started supporting the CAF as a supporter, as a donor. Although I really have a great unit not that far from where I live, I just never really had the opportunity to or the time 
to get involved. It was about 2012, I think. And I say one day, you know, I have a free Saturday. Let me go to the hangar in Peachtree City. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. So I went down to Peachtree City. And when I opened the door of that hangar, I told myself, why in the world I've been waiting this long to come down here? Because you open that hangar door and you have P-51s and SPD downlets, Corsair. And I was just hooked. I didn't have really think twice. And as often happens in the things I do, I just dive into it and I dove into it. So I became a member, uh, I think it was January 2013, and I've been a member since then. I also had the opportunity to work as an employee or as a staff member of the CAF. A few years ago, I was director of digital marketing. In fact, I work with Leah. So I've been a member since uh, essentially 2013. So next couple of years will be my 10th anniversary. Very good. No, that's great. And you definitely, I think, are a good man to have on for the show because we can get that member perspective sure. and see what it's like to be a member. So, you know, you talked about walking into the hangar. We talked about when you joined, but what was that process like to become a member? How hard or simple was it? It's very, very, very simple. You know, now, back in those days, uh, not all the units had a advanced or a modern website, so there was not the opportunity to sign up online. Even to these days, you can download the forms from the website, but what you do, you just walk to the unit and uh, request a membership application. And it's very simple. You send a check to headquarters in Dallas, and then you pay your uh, wing dues or unit dues, which is completely separate from the $200. $200 is a minimum fee to be a full-fledged member, Okay, $200 a year. A year. Plus, here at the Georgia Air Base, we pay $49 a year to be a member of the specific unit. I see. Now, when you join the CAF, you're more than welcome and free to join as many units as you want. In fact, at some point, because of my involvement as a, a quarter staff member, I used to join multiple units and became quite expensive. And uh, I kind of uh, reduced the number of memberships to a couple of units, one here in, in Atlanta, the one I belong to, and the other one in uh, Duluth, Minnesota, they're restoring a PBY. Oh, wow. I just became close to some of the members and I couldn't, I want to support them from a distance. You just couldn't help yourself. No, it's, it's different. <laughs> just that. <laughs> some point I have to say, you know what, just time to scale down a little bit. That's fair. It was very easy. And uh, I simply think that if you love vintage aviation, if you love aviation, there is nothing better than the CAF. There are other organizations out there, EA, Warbirds, you know, flying museums and planes of fame in California and so forth. But the CAF really gives you the opportunity essentially for $200 a year to be around history and touch those airplanes that many of us look at inside magazines and you really have the opportunity to walk into a hangar and see your favorite warbirds and work on them, which is really the coolest part. Yeah. So I don't think any other organization, aviation organization in the world offers you that. And as I said, EA Warbirds is another organization, but it's a different uh, structure and a different business model. So it's a little different for the CAF. Yeah. Okay. It's just great, really. With all your access to Warbirds, either specifically at your unit or any of the other units around the country or, or the world, frankly, have you ever had a chance to get a ride in one? Yes. I'm one of the lucky ones that because of my involvement with the CAF and my involvement with the magazines, I got to fly pretty much it 
all the warbirds or the main warbirds are still flying today? So the answer is yes, and the list of airplanes is very long. It's not an automatic thing. At least in our unit in Airbase Georgia, you get to fly, but it's not like they take you up just to give you a ride. Okay. Obviously, there is a cost associated to operating this aircraft, and Leah touched those numbers briefly. So sometimes you reposition the airplane from your base to an air show, and you get to fly in the back of the P-51. In my case, the first ride was a uh, flying a T-6. Mm-hmm. Again, we were going to an event. It was an empty seat. After volunteering for several months, you kind of have to put your time in. Don't expect to join. And after three weeks, you're going to go up and flying. Sure. Because that's not the case. Like every other organization, it's a very meritocratic organization. So you put time in and you get a reward. Yep. So I flew in uh, the T6. And uh, the same summer, we went to Oshkosh. And they surprised me with a ride in the P-51. Oh, wow. And again, I, I was now a little bit less active, but I was very active at first. So I was really lucky to fly in pretty much anything that has an additional seat. <laughs> That's pretty great. Do you have a favorite Warbird? I would say that my favorite airplane in general is the DC-3. Okay. The Warbird version will be the C-47, just because what the DC-3 and the C-47 represents for aviation. It's just one of those airplanes that's still flying today, still being used for actual aerial work. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a joyride and I was always being fascinated with that airplane. I do have a favorite airplane and a favorite Warbird fighter would be the F-104 Starfighter. Okay. As I mentioned, I'm from Italy. Italy flew the Starfighters until 2003. Yeah. My uncle was a crew chief on the Starfighter. So growing up, my dad was a military ATC controller. I remember growing up and be able to go on base quite often. And luckily here in the U.S., we have five of them that are still flying. Two are former Canadians and three are former Italian Air Force F-104 down in uh, Titusville, Florida with the Starfighters Aerospace. So I'll get to that airplane quite often. Very cool. Well, let's get back to your local airbase. What's the kind of the normal battle rhythm or you know meeting schedule or, or what kind sure. of thing? What do you guys do for that kind of stuff? The official uh, hours of the museum are Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday okay. from uh, 9 a.m. Uh, until 4 p.m. Now, with this being said, there is always somebody there Monday through Monday <laughs> around <laughs> the clock because, again, it's very much like a, a very active a flight operation, mm-hmm. meaning that we have uh, activities, we have uh, air shows, we have events. Well, you know, not so much in the last last year and a half, but yeah. pre-COVID. So there is always somebody, there is always a volunteer working on an airplane, which means if visitors come by, there is always somebody that can let you through the doors. But Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturdays are official museum hours and days, and uh, we meet once a month officially to discuss the current business and the activities of the unit. Okay, very good. Do you guys have like guest speakers or anything like that? Like, Yeah, we used to. Uh, in fact, and Leah mentioned some of our events mm-hmm. that we do. Yep, we used to have a Living History Day until a few years ago, and we had amazing guests. You know, we kind of a uh, trying to diversify our programming. You know, obviously, the CAF, it's World War II-centric, but mm-hmm. we had a SR-71 pilot, U.S. pilots, F-111 pilots. One of our members flew the El Dorado mission when they went to bomb Gaddafi. So mm-hmm. I always look for alternative subjects because, again, featuring the same things all the time is kind of 
gets bored. So sure. we did that. We are actually very active with events that we organize on our own. World War II Heritage Days is probably our most famous event in its 19th year. It's been long, long run, and essentially it's a reenactment. Saturday and Sunday event with reenactment and a Saturday anger dance. We offer rides, and we have also presentations throughout the day with guest speakers and book authors and vendor sections. So it's a really great event. Also, for five years, we ran an event called Atlanta Warbur Weekend mm-hmm. at another airport called KPDK, Pichuri Calb Airport, which is the Atlanta downtown airport. Okay. That was a thematic event, meaning that every year we picked a different theme. Also, we offer rides to the public, and it was an incredible success. We haven't done it in the last three years, mainly because myself, because I've just always been the chairman and the organizer, and I had to step back and focus on other things. But we're thinking eventually about bringing the Atlanta World War Weekend back, hopefully next year. So we'll see. We do participate to air shows, and we go to other groups, other organizations, events. Mm-hmm. We do quite a lot of air shows. So our unit is very mission-driven and very active. Okay. Our airplanes do fly quite often. So as a result, there is always something going on in the hangar. It's never a dull moment. Speaking of the hangar, I know you kind of mentioned it up top. So you have a P-51. So we have uh, the P-51 Red Nose, which is actually the aircraft that started the CAF Mm -hmm. in uh, 1957. It was acquired in Arizona for $2,500. What a deal. Yep, good deal. And became uh, the airplane known as the first original aircraft of the CAF. We have an FG-1D Corsair built by Goodyear. I think that was airplane number three or... uh, Number four, so one of the first airplanes that the CF acquired. Mm-hmm. Interesting enough that FG-1D was actually based here in Atlanta between 1950 and 1952. In fact, at Pichu Airport, back in those days, it was NAS Atlanta. Okay. We have an SBD Dauntless, which for many years was the only SBD, original Navy SBD flying the world. And now I think there are five total. Wow. That was the first major restoration that the unit did before my days. It's a fantastic, beautiful restoration. Also, we have a P-63 King Cobra, which is uh, has an interesting story. In fact, it used to be a first a Bell test airplane and then a NACA test airplane. Before NASA, you know, there was NACA and then NACA became NASA. Mm-hmm. We were able to obtain an original 1945 photo of the airplane at Moffett Field with four big letters that says test on the side. Oh, wow. So we actually duplicated a paint scheme and we brought it up to Oshkosh in 2017 and it was uh, very well received. We have a LT6 Mosquito, which is very much so a SNJ painted as a LTC LT6 Mosquito. We have a PT-19. We also have a Stearman that we are restoring. First restoration after the P-63 in a long time. And it's being restored only by ladies. That's the coolest part. We are dedicating the Stearman to Rosie the Riveter. So our ladies of the unit are restoring the plane, which is really a neat story. Uh, Also, we have a guest, Warbird, which is a Kate Japanese bomber. 
which is not obviously an original Kate bomber, but it's a mix between a T6 and a BT-13, which was used in many of the World War II and movies, mm-hmm. including Tora, 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 the great TV show Baba Black Sheep, mm-hmm. the Battle of Midway. So it was one of the 23 airplanes that the studios built for Tora, Tora, Tora. Yeah. And one of our members owns it, although it's not owned by the CAF, it kind of fits the theme of the hangar. Yeah, for sure. And we have a T-34. You know, I can't forget a T-34, otherwise they're <laughs> going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. T-34 painted in yellow navy. And that's it. That's it. So we're, we're very busy. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I mean, that's quite a great collection for any place to see one of those things, To let alone how all of them in one place is, is pretty great. Well, shoot, man, that's good stuff. Is there anything else that you want to mention about me being a member of the Commemorative Air Force or anything you want to add to Leah's discussion? I really encourage, if you love um, vintage aviation, the CAF and you know, and all the other organizations out there are a great place to start. It's very much a volunteer-based organization, so you kind of have to be patient with some of the things that happen, sure. like you know, any other no-profit organizations, you know, 10% of the people do 90% of the work. So <laughs> I think you walk in and you, you need to find your niche. Even if you're not a pilot, we do need people with different skill sets. Mm-hmm. I'm a pilot myself, but I'm not flying yet those warbirds. And my background was in digital, digital marketing websites and I guess digital business. And first job I did, I took over the website. Yeah, The rest is history, as they say. So There is always a job for anyone at the CAF, and you don't have to be a pilot at all to be a member. That's really the beauty of it. And there is a misconception that if you're a pilot, former military pilot or former airline pilot, you'll fit in. That's not true. You know, really anyone will fit in. And it becomes your second family in a way, at least for me. It's, you know, with love and hate, you love and hate sometimes your family, same thing. You know, where there are people, there are feelings and relationships and Again, it's a fantastic place to enjoy aviation, enjoy history, and and honoring veterans. And then there are you know local leadership types of positions, not necessarily centric on designing websites or anything like you did, but there are other types of leadership positions. There is what we call the staff, which is um, I guess the managing board of the unit. Okay, and those are elected members. I think there are seven or eight positions that you have to run for, and you get elected, and you are. I think you are on for a couple of years, two years. Okay. But there are, uh, I guess, non-staff position. In fact, I always been the marketing officer, and there is not such a thing as a marketing officer. We kind of made up because that's my background. Yeah. Marketing and business development. Now they have a development position, which is a staff position, and that's more in the no-profit world. No, the development officer or development position is the person that goes out and develops fundraising strategies and try to raise money for the organization. So there are a lot of made up titles that kind of fit the skills of the person that is doing that specific job. That makes sense. All right. Well, great. Well, now that we understand what it's like to be a member of the commemorative air force, Mm -hmm. let's move into your job right now. And this is going to play, I think, a little bit of a bigger role in going, you know, our Warbird series here on our podcast. But Mm -hmm. uh, you work for Warbird Digest and you've talked about your marketing and and your digital skills background. You're the chief of marketing. So first, what is that job and what are your duties and responsibilities with that? Yeah, sure, sure. I'm uh, I'm actually partner in the magazine. Okay. Me and Tim Savage is my uh, 
partner in the magazine. Warburg Digest, essentially, it's uh, we call ourselves, we are the voice of the Warburg community. We have a beautiful magazine and a news site, news website called Warburg's News. So the name of the company is actually Vintage Aviation Publications. The story, essentially, it's very simple. Tim Savage started the website, uh, sorry, the magazine, I think in 2008. Okay. And I think he sold it, went through different owners. Tim bought back the magazine in 2000 and uh, at the end of 2016, I believe. As far as I'm concerned, in 2012, given my background in digital marketing, I started a simple blog called Warbirds News because I felt like there was a gap in daily news and daily updates. So I started this blog also with the objective of providing a digital platform to promote vintage aviation and aviation museums and offer them an opportunity to essentially drive traffic to their website or fundraising campaigns. And uh, the website grew pretty fast. And in 2016, as I said, when Team bought back magazine, we thought, well, when we join forces and we become one company, so we're going to have the magazine and we're going to have the digital platforms as well as, you know, social media channels. That's where Vintage Aviation Publication essentially came from. Now, the magazine is um, it's just beautiful. I mean, if you pick up a copy, we used to be in uh, Barnes & Nobles until COVID. It's just a beautiful, glossy, polished magazine. Our articles are almost like having really a mini book because the average length, it's anything between 15 and 20 pages per article. So it's not your three or four pages article with pictures all over. It's very well thought. If you are into classic cars or classic boating, Mm -hmm. that's really the style of um, magazine we have. Warbirds News, on the other hand, it's more focused on the day-to-day restoration news, aviation museum news, anything really that can support the Warburg community. We are about to come out with an article, hopefully tomorrow, about the C-53 restoration. And at the end of each article, we always put a link to the donation page of that specific organization. And we know for a fact that these articles help driving donations to these folks and to these organizations. So, Again, our job is and our mission is to support the Warburg community, and we do that also within the magazine because let's not forget these are beautiful airplanes, but there are always people and human beings behind that yeah. spend a lot of time, a lot of money to restore them. So we like to tell the stories of the machines and the people that fly and maintain them. Definitely. How often are you guys publishing uh, issues of your magazine? The magazine is six uh, times a year, so, you know, every other month, basically. Again, it's been a difficult time because of COVID for everyone. We skipped a few issues, but now we're back on track. I see. Okay. Issue 92, in fact, just came out not long ago, and we're already working on issue 93, which is the September-October issue. And I'm assuming you guys offer memberships or subscriptions for the, the issues? The magazine is on a subscription uh, basis. Okay. And it's $49 a year. You can also purchase a digital subscription. Okay. Everyone, after you see the magazine, you just want to get the paper copy because it's just beautiful. I'm not sure if you had the opportunity to see it, but since we don't live 
that far from each other next time i'll bring you a couple of copies so you'll get to see what we do and uh, it's very much a magazine that you will keep on your coffee table in the living room that's how beautiful it is we always pay a lot of attention to the cover photo Mm -hmm. and it's always something that you will like to put on a poster or on a frame there's definitely something about having a magazine in your hand especially you know high quality one with some weight to it that's kind of the experience you get it is and look I, i am a proponent of anything digital that's what i've been doing for many years but yeah i still like to have my book and my good magazine in my hands when it's time to read so that's right so you touched on one article in the current issue and this kind of goes into why i brought you on in addition to being a member of the commemorative air force but you're going to help us out with a few guests on yeah. uh, some of the yeah. uh, upcoming episodes that we have planned but for the magazine what do you guys have that you can share for upcoming issues well, issue 92, as I mentioned, is uh, out and can be purchased on the website. And there is one particular article I would like to mention. It's a very special article. It's about the Lockheed Constellation Columbine 2, okay. which is known as the first Air Force One. Oh, wow. Yeah. And with uh, Ike's airplane. The reason why I think it's a special article, because it's actually a tribute article to Carl Stolfultz, who is the man that rescued the plane and invested his company monies into the restoration. And the Carl, it's a long-time worker supporter and owns a company called Dynamic Aviation, does a lot of work. This company does a lot of work for the DoD, King Airs and other platforms, convert King Airs and uh, Dash 8s into essentially DoD, DoD and uh, CIA airplanes. Mm-hmm. And just a long-time supporter of the the community, which unfortunately passed a few months ago. So I didn't get to see his article. But again, it's a fantastic, it's a 25 pages article. And that's why I just mentioned that we are a little different from other magazines because it's a 25 pages article. It's long, a lot of text, but beautiful yeah. photos as well. And we really dig deep into the history of the plane and the person that we are featuring in the article. In this case, obviously, it's Carl. We have an article about a combat veteran P-51, again, 26 pages. So anyone who loves P-51s will have plenty of material to read. And then we have a section called Fly Log, what little blurbs on what's going on around the world. Those are pretty much the main articles. Now, in issue 93 that's coming out, I'm actually very excited about this issue because it's very uh, diversified in its content. You know, it's not easy to plan a magazine because restorations, they're never on time. So when you plan your issues in your editorial calendar, very often you get to improvise and we don't get to feature all the pieces that we originally planned. So we've been waiting for a long time to feature however this airplane, it's a P-64 ultra rare airplane that's finally going to be featuring issue 93. We also have a great article about the only flying MiG-23 in the U.S., obviously flown by a civilian. Another article about the Hawker Hurricane and a Spitfire and a Red Knight CT-133, which is essentially a T-33. So it's going to be a very feature-rich issue. Hopefully it will be out sometimes probably mid-November, beginning of November probably. Perfect. I always get stressed about not having enough content, but it, it definitely does sound like there's enough stuff going on that there's always an interesting story that you guys can find. It's just a matter of getting it on in time. Yeah, there's always an up and down, you know, when sometimes you really, you know, you got to send uh, the magazine to the printer and you really don't have enough stories because 
it's up and down. You know, you never yeah. know when you're going to get the photos done. You know, you send out a, one of your contributors to take photos and you might have two or three days of weather. And so yeah. just can't do it. And I think the fact we are a monthly publication helps us a lot, but also help us really provide quality content and we'll take the time really to write all the details that we know or that are known of each specific airplane. And that's why we can produce 20 to 25 pages articles. That's great. All right. Well, we'll definitely have to catch back up here maybe in a, in a few months and kind of see the status of some of these things coming up and everything and where you guys are at with all that. Mo, thanks so much for sharing everything about your experience as a member on the Commander of Air Force sure. with us and kind of giving us a different perspective because you know it's always good to have both sides of the story, if you will. But as we start to wrap things up, I want to make sure we cover anything with you. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you either about the Commander Air Force or Orbit Digest uh, magazine that you want to want the listeners to know? Again, as a publisher of, I love the CAF, but as a publisher of an independent, I guess, media and uh, website and magazine, I like to really let everyone know that definitely join the CAF, but who joins the CAF usually joins other organizations. And there are really other organizations out there. You know, if you don't have a CAF unit nearby, I'm sure you have an aviation museum not that far from you. And all these museums need help of volunteers. So CAF does fantastic work. We fly airplanes, aviation museums always usually don't, but that doesn't mean that you can't uh, help them keep aviation history alive. Yeah, definitely. That's you know one of the things I love about doing this is is getting to hear those stories and then hopefully getting, you know, maybe five, ten more people interested in warbirds that weren't before and they either join up or at least, you know, give a little more traffic to it and help out with revenue in some form or fashion Absolutely. to keep those airplanes uh, alive and well. So, Mo, thanks uh, again for all of that and uh, in advance for all the stuff that you're uh, helping us out with here on the show in the next uh, few months. For our listeners, you know, I'm excited to say that we're going to soon branch out a bit from where we've been up to this point in the Warbird series and take a look at a few non-U.S. Warbirds that Mo's helped us with some guests for, like the Spitfire, the Hurricane, and an even rarer find, in my opinion, the A6M0, and then some other uh, non-aircraft-centric topics that we've got coming up, uh, I think, maybe later in the spring. We'll, we'll see how that's going to go, but uh, salvage operations and uh, looking at how to find and recover warbirds. I am pretty excited about all that, but for all the listeners out there, please go and uh, check out the magazine. A couple websites to get you to that same place, basically. you got warbirddigest.com. And then if you want to look at the current Warbird events and everything that goes along with those, you can go to the other website they have, www.warbirds, that's plural with an S, warbirdsnews.com and sign up for both. Uh, if you're looking for great content, interesting stories and everything else that Mo has talked about and so much more, please go check them out. And my thanks again to Leah for our discussion on the uh, Commemorative Air Force. And don't forget to see what they have to offer at www.commemorativeairforce.org. So from all of us here at the uh, Fighter Pilot Podcast, thanks again for listening. Joel will be back for the next episode with kind of an update, a little bit of a change of pace here with what's up with the F-35. But until then, have a great week. Get high, get fast, and do some good work. We'll see you. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com. Or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening.
thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.